0: cherry developer news episode number 76 for monday january 20th 2014 i'm ken rimple
1: i'm Joe confino
2: i'm
0: eric snyder and on the phone on skype we have
2: sue john kapadia
0: yay it's a foursome this week people all right lots of stuff uh looks like uh the new year's beginning to cook up and things are happening so we'll st- try to organize it this time a little bit um just before we get started if you uh if you're new to the Dev News, you can get to the show notes by going to chariotsolutions.com slash devnews, and that will take you to our Dev News feed, and you can find Dev News 76 right there. And you'll uh, click on the view of the article, and you'll see all the links that we're talking about today. Uh, and that's that. You can subscribe through iTunes or through RSS right from the page. Okay, so let's start off. So uh, we've got a couple of technology uh, discussions first, you know, APIs and such. Let's start off by
1: talking about Hamel and JS. Sure. So um, there was a couple things that I've been hacking around with some Angular and hacking around with some Ember and um, saw that the templating for both of them is, while vastly different, um, I wanted to look at some other templating options, um, especially for Ember. Because I I really like Ember in a lot of cases. I'm not as nuts about its templating. Uh, Angular obviously has a completely different style of templating. um, But anyway, let's talk about Slim and Emblem came across these, and uh, actually the Justin, the lead developer on Hadle, told me about both of these, and I thought they were really wild. Um, I guess we look first at uh, Slim, or actually, we'll start with Emblem, which is ember emblemjs.com. So if you imagine, uh, this is a templating language. It's fully compatible, or it's a fully, it says it's a concise, beautiful, fully compatible templating alternative to Handlebars.js. So when I first saw Haml, which is a, a templating Uh, framework used in Rails a lot, it was really mind-boggling to me coming from the Java world and JSP. So Hamill, imagine if you just have HTML and um, in your template rather than have tags, so begin HTML and HTML, you just have the word HTML. So it's almost like all the HTML structure but without a lot of this begin and tag kind of nonsense. And it's very readable, it's very concise. Well now this kind of same very concise templating is available for JS templates. And so if you look at emblem, so if you want to do a paragraph, you just do P and then um, and then space and then whatever you want to put in the paragraph tag. So rather than begin P, some text, end P, you just say P space and the thing. If you want to do an unordered list, for instance, you just say UL and then on the next line, LI and then the list item and then LI and then the list item. Again, rather than saying... Um angle bracket UL end angle bracket, you know, and then and then you have to have a closing UL. It's just this very beautiful thing and you can use this in your JS templates and that makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> Emblem is, is really, I believe, for Ember JS, but then Slim, which is slim langcom dot com. That's a great one. I believe is, is more general purpose. So I haven't gotten further than any of these other than going, oh my word, those are like how I like templates to look. And when we went to Ember I felt in a way the templates were going a step backwards from, say, Haml. They were going back towards more of a, not as bad, but more of a JSP kind of model. Um, And and Angular, I sort of like the templates, and I sort of don't, the idea of you're overriding the attributes. It's just a very different thing. With Angular, you're um, using um, HTML attributes to represent your structure, and um, sometimes that's harder to read. So
3: I, I like this because, well... You, you're gonna, you know, I'm a little bit prejudiced on this fact, but whenever white space is significant, I think that's a good thing, right? And because you, think, you
1: like Visual Basic, I know you no. Python
3: <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> but, but if you think about that, uh, also coming from the Python world, you know, uh, when you have templates where templating where white space is significant, it really discourages you from embedding code because you can do that in Hamel, uh, but you, you know, it it looks horrible, and uh, you know, you don't want to do it, so. If white space becomes significant, you end up not doing that.
1: So that's you, what I meant to say. Yes. got that's why he's here.
0: As long <laughs> as my program section and my data section are separate in my COBOL app, I'm good. Oh, good God. <laughs> but if you you look- know, there's also a um, uh, there's a Haml.js JS uh, for Node as well. So if you're getting that on the server side. But uh, you're talking these are
1: all client-side ones. And I should mention the one other thing nice. Hamel is very nice, but everything starts with, I believe, percent. So you have like percent. Um, P for a paragraph tag and in uh, slim and in emblem they just get rid of that so you just you start with the actual HTML tag you don't have to put the percent everywhere so it's just so readable right
3: because we need a slightly different version of the same thing
2: Well, yeah. no, because I love the number of different layers now so we have like you know CoffeeScript goes down to JavaScript we have SAS and less goes down to CSS now let's add emblem that goes down to handlebars <laughs> <laughs> well
0: that's fun stuff alright cool so there we go. Hamel esque JavaScript templates for the client side. Uh, I picked this one out for you, uh, Eric. Go yes. by example. Now I think you might have mentioned this in passing, or maybe not. Uh, uh, I've
3: uh, you know I've been I've been using this site for a while. I don't know if I mentioned it or not, but um, it's just a really excellent breakdown of various uh, concepts and constructs of Go in simple one or two page examples. Just very well done. Simple. Um, uh, basically code on the right and uh, descriptions on the left that line up with the relevant pieces of code uh, of just just the, you know concepts that you need to know starting on things that build on each other. Uh, you know, th- simple things like values and variables, constants, uh, uh, conditionals, functions, going down. It's like Go routines and channels into the more sophisticated very nice. things. But yes. all of them are just very, very simple. So it's it's well done. I really like
0: this. Yeah, thing. Go by example dot com. It's a it's a learning mullet, so to speak. Code on the right and comments <laughs> on the
1: left. I like it. it. Looks a lot. The Groovy Groovy has really good documentation like this. Yeah. For the same thing. It says. Do this. Here's how. Do this. Here's how. Do this. Here. There's how. a library
0: that does this, and I forget what it is. But um, we should look for that sometime. I, I've seen like with JavaScript, you can get it to generate um, documentation left and right, and it, it might just use standard JavaScript documentation. Uh, it's really handy for like code review and things like that, which is really neat. So.
3: Yeah, you know, there's, I'm, I'm feeling a little defensive. There's been a lot of Go bashing <laughs> in, in Hacker News lately, in, in, the, in the development community. So, really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. Because it's it, new. If, you know, we fear change. Just a big, fat raspberry to everybody who, who doesn't like Go. I agree me. with you. You know, I mean,
0: if we, if we didn't like new languages, nothing would ever happen in IT, right? So Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I put my parentheses up to you in a closure type way and say deafen coolness to Go. Wow. Still
1: very much on the fence. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Well, there's go, probably go. Google
2: applications that people use every day. They don't realize parts of it are written in Go. Really?
3: YouTube for example. Uh, YouTube, yeah. chunks so, of it. Uh the If you
2: hate Go, you hate YouTube. <laughs> well, haters you, got to hate. If you hate man. Go,
3: you're you're not a good American, I think. There you, you go. I, no.
0: I love, it was made I overseas. Love, no, I love kidding. my
1: country. I just want to say that.
0: Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Oh my gosh. Um Rails users uh who are looking to use Angular, um if you're, you know, my Angular uh typical uh flame sword um I rolled a d20. I'm shooting everything with it. Uh,
1: so one bitcoin uh, for you for one, saying Angular JS.
0: That's right. So um, so it turns out that Rails users, uh, there are a couple of different ways to integrate uh, AngularJS into it. And someone wrestled for a full year already, believe it or not, um, with Angular on Rails, and has a very very deep uh, integration and discussion. Talks so about how they, yeah, go ahead.
3: That, that begs the point does it take that long to integrate angular into rails no no
0: no no i don't think so i think it's more they tried one approach and found oh. out that it was really not all that easy basically what they're looking at and we we, we talked about this offline we were talking about another project recently is it you know rails is it's so opinionated and it's mm-hmm. so the opinions are almost like inside jokes to people who aren't <laughs> developers like did you know what the name of the next parameter is it could be an array but you know (laughs) so you never know but um if you're a rails developer you get you're on the inside joke and you get all the the fun you're the cool kids but point being that um, there's a couple different ways to do it and so they went down one row they had some issues with the asset pipeline they wanted to use uh, grunt for builds because they like the grunt you know uh, way of doing things but they didn't want to step away from rake you know all these different things. Oh, so they sure. went mm-hmm. in depth about all the different things they did for integration and suggestions for how to m- organize your project folders and everything. So if you're a Rails developer, you like Angular, but you want a deep integration, that's something to look at. Hmm. And my girls are here today, and they're they're drawing pretty flowers and dresses and stuff in the back on my whiteboard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, watching yeah. You, Dad. I know I'm being watched. Watching. <laughs> always <laughs> watching <laughs> you.
3: The NSA, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's c- children, that's the secret. Yeah. You know why I they're, asked for they're this? They're watching us
2: they? through the children. <laughs> there's,
3: I mean, there's there's different ways to to look at how how to integrate Angular into uh, you know most web frameworks. And yep, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you could uh, you could you could. Take the, the simple even split and, you know, create your REST API and then have your separate Angular. That's what I've always thought of, do yeah. You, you know, your your Angular tools, your JavaScript tools, your, your grunts, your yeomans, your all that stuff. Yep. Um, that's where I am mentally well, That's currently. kind of, th- I think that's where I am too. Or yeah. you could go down the other route and, uh, you know, for Rails, obviously you could go the all Ruby way and, and do everything in Rake and
0: as much as possible. And I just like the agnosticness of having a separate client. That's what I like. Yeah. You know, it's its its own tier, therefore it's its own build process and its own software. Yeah, I version it separately. And, and I don't care whether the server changes from one to another. Yeah. I'm agnostic at that point. That's why I like it that way. I'm yeah, kind of with I you. I actually agree
1: with that 100%.
0: Yeah. Coolness. All right. So, Elixir. So, let's now talk about a little more philosophy, I guess, right? So, the Internet of Things. First of all, that's uh, what all these little devices, like my my smartwatch here and everything, having IP addresses and everyone talks, and the Nest uh, yeah. thermometer monitor things. Right? That's the Internet of Things, essentially.
1: You know, it's an acronym that I actually hate. But the Java <laughs> it's Coffee co- Coffee yeah, Machine. I think that's it. Just thousands and thousands of devices, and they say non-computing devices, but obviously they're that computers be because that's how they talk on the network. But right. anyway, um, yes. So this this article is about though just handling lots and lots of connections of things, which you could say is the Internet of Things, but also could just be a really popular retail website on Black Friday or something like that. Yes. Lots of traffic. And what was interesting about this was uh, it's a use, you know, case study from some, um, basically a project where they started out with Ruby and uh, running – um, a cr- they said a crush of 50,000 internet connected devices and that's they used a lot they used some of the typical ways of uh, you know handling this in Ruby which you would maybe do event machine or celluloid they said they ran on MRI or JRuby and they just had some trouble getting to in, in their particular use case scaling so they decided to try Elixir which is and basically a nice language that's sort of Ruby-esque it runs on the Erlang JVM and Erlang is meant for massive scale and so it, what i found interesting the article's interesting you know kind of their evolution going from event machine to elixir and really what i kind of thought was neat and was when they talked about welcoming the herd with open arms or how do you accept a hundred thousand a thousand connections per second on a single machine with one os process and they described what i thought was just the way that stuff worked which is the typical um way that we normally process sockets so uh, something's listening blocking on a port um, a socket co- um, a request comes in and it spawns uh, hands it off to a thread and a thread pool or something and so that but they said you know eventually that's going to you're going to run out you're going to things are going to come in too fast basically and then the operating system is going to say blat you you just can't they can't handle anymore and so what what they said that i thought was pretty wild that you can do an elixir is you can spin up multiple so that's one process blocking on a port in Elixir, you can spin up multiple acceptor processes, which each blocks on the same listening port. Ooh. And they put in there, yes, you can do this. And I think it's really like they're not actually blocking because I don't think you can actually even do that in the operating system, but they act like they're blocking. And that's because with Elixir or the Erlang VM, I suspect, has a supervisor that actually owns the listening socket and, and the children processes that accept. So it's a basically a way that you can have a whole bunch of processes actually Essentially act like they're listening on the same port and therefore that's how they got to thousands of connections on a single machine It was pretty cool and it broke one of my big assumptions which is one process one port
0: years ago and we're talking many um, When I was a Sybase DBA expert They were talking about the internal architecture of the Sybase kernel to handle all these different connections and they called it spin locking um, early early on where they would just have this really tight loop and then a bunch of little worker handoff engines and they were actually physically, I think, threads at the time, maybe or something, God knows what. And they were forking that way. And I guess anything could be broken down to what's the tightest loop I can write and spawn to workers that handle those loops and break off and do more work. I suppose
1: it's kind of similar. And I mean, it is, but I think the difference is they, they were use saying CPUs
0: you, and such
1: for whatever reason by by doing I guess concurrency with multiple processes versus concurrency with multiple threads. Yeah, right. They were able to. Um, basically get more throughput or, or right. you know handle more. So, um, That's and, cool. And I think maybe some of it had to do with the internals of the Erlang VM, which is optimized for that sort of scenario. Uh-huh. So it uh, was pretty cool. It, it was worth
2: looking at.
0: And the TLDR, <laughs> El- Elixir and Erlang are awesome. There we are. <laughs> That's,
2: That's a good, good segue, actually, into the Akka FSM stuff. Hit it, man. Cause so Akka, as uh, Joel was talking about Erlang and Erlang OTP, so Akka is completely fashioned after Erlang OTP, which is this – really massively scalable uh, actor framework. So Akka is basically this framework on Scala saying, hey, you can sort of partition your problem into a bunch of little uh, workers that pass mes- messages between each other to do their work. And, you know, I'm oversimplifying everything, but, you know, everything's immutable. And the key thing about Erlang is the way parents and children interact is uh, very fault-tolerant. So it's able to handle failures and restart and sort of self-heal based on how you... Uh, uh, I guess, separate your problem up into individual pieces. So akka basically says, Erlang, you're awesome. Okay, we're going to copy what you did and put it in Scala. So on top of that is this FSM thing, which uh, is getting a lot of traction the past year or two, is uh, basically writing your code like a finite state machine. But akka provides a DSL to write finite state machines inside your actor. So you can write really clear code in a massively scalable, you know, concurrent context, and handle basically state transitions. So it's a really nice DSL around that. But people were doing stuff like that anyway before, but the code was pretty dirty. This sort of cleans it all up and provides a standard model that Erlang follows as well. So again, kudos to Erlang. They've, you know, they did a thing well ahead of their time that other, other languages and frameworks are copying now. So, and there's a link in the article that sort of provides a high-level tutorial about that.
1: Okay, uh, so Joel, you had a question about that, right? Yeah. So um, I like state machines. When I think about akka, a lot of what's talked about is uh, statelessness um, and you know immutability. So how does that work when you're putting state in an actor, which is you know also at some level supposed to be immutable and stateless?
2: Right. So uh, an actor instance itself internally can have state. So you can describe changes within the actor via a finite state machine. The whole point about uh, immutability is that the messages that are coming into an actor and the messages that it sends out, all the data there should be immutable. So it shouldn't be able to change things coming in or uh, other actors shouldn't be able to change things that the actor sends out. So within an actor, you can actually make changes, but those changes should never be visible to anything outside that actor. So if I'm external to the actor, it should be as if that actor is immutable.
1: Got it. That makes sense. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Next on the list, uh, workflow, automate your iOS tasks.
2: Oh, so, yeah. I thought this was a, obviously for the super, super uber lazy where even, you know, doing a few tasks on an iPad is very taxing at the end of the day. So hard. Yeah. So this is some hackathon. I don't even know about It's like a three-day hackathon uh, at the University of Michigan. And there's a video on the link provided there. But uh, basically, it's a automate workflow on an iPad. So, or I guess an IO, any iOS device. So sort of like I... I look at them as high-level macros so you can sort of build a series of steps that can get triggered based off of some action or event that occurs and then it does all these other things like i think the example they have in their video is like you take a photo and then it like does maybe some post-processing and then like sends it off to like facebook or twitter and then does a couple other things so if you're really lazy this kind of stuff is awesome
0: it sounds like your baby needs you <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, can you hear the yeah I'm in a room where the doors. Oh my god! That's a baby.
0: Babies are like that, man. They're like it's like your kryptonite, the Valkyrie.
2: I'm so sorry about that.
0: <laughs> no, no, we have got the kids over here too. It's like it's, it's the kid one. It's very funny. So, are you talking, talking about? Uh, oh, the girls are flipping out now because of their baby quiet. Shh. Um, okay, we'll be editing this out in post again. So I think it's cool that like you. Know, at so, what can you do? Like, oh, go ahead. What kind of things can you do there? So, can you like have it automatically? There's
2: very little detail on this, by the way. It's just this video. Uh huh. So I don't know much about it except that it looks like basically what I said. It's automating a set of tasks based off of some trigger, which I don't, know if, I don't know if that's people who know more about iOS. I don't know if that's something the Apple API, iOS API allows by default or did they have to really literally hack into something to be able to do that. But the cool thing about it was a bunch of students did this, you know, at a university over the weekend.
0: I mean, it's certainly different operating systems. It's always possible. Like, for example, Android is really good about you launch a, an intent or request uh, interaction, I guess, with an intent. You say I signal that I want to do this thing, you know, send an email and different. Yeah, apps yeah and can Android, you for it. can do
2: anything. You can rewrite the OS, and you can, you know, load your. <laughs> you I can do whatever you want.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I just didn't know that like iOS even would let you. I would think Steve Jobs would come out of his grave and, and take away your phone. That's what I'm
2: thinking. I don't know the technology behind this, but it seems pretty cool that they did it over a weekend, basically. So, uh,
0: all right, here's one that I think is quote cool: uh, a Kickstarter. And uh, these are fun sometimes for a ready for this fifteen dollars Arduino with a really powerful GPS and decent specs, actually. And so uh, they've now overmet their goal. In fact, I just checked the other day and they weren't there yet. But they wanted twenty seven thousand. They're already over thirty three thousand. So it must be something people want. Um, it's called NavSpark. It's a small, powerful breadboard friendly thirty two bit development board. Arduino-compatible with a world-class GPS receiver as an onboard peripheral, and it's under 15 bucks. Want to know where your kid is headed today? Put it in his backpack and wire it up. <laughs> I need one of these. Um, so, you know, before, with Arduino boxes or little, you know, kind of project board systems that run on, I guess, USB power or low voltage power, um, required an additional shield uh, board that sits on top of the Arduino, and now this is built in. Uh, and also, apparently, there's some pretty decent uh, settings too. If they, they show you kind of these development boards like the AT Megas and um, different sizes. And so, this one has a 100 megahertz clock rate, where a lot of the other boards are under that, well under that in some cases. Um, 212K of RAM, which, believe it or not, for one of these things is pretty decent. Uh, a, a gig of, uh, is it a gig? A meg? Sorry, of, I was getting really hopeful there. A meg of uh, flash memory, so you could store your points, I guess, where you're going. Um, and floating point and the GPS. So uh, if you're interested, you can look at the show notes and uh, take a look at the link. They even have a a board-out schematic here showing all the different connectors and the fact they've got all the general-purpose I.O. pins to connect up your sensors and things like that. It's an Arduino plus GPS that you can then run um, your projects on. So, Hmm. And if you pay now, I I think that uh, you can still do these. They've got a couple of different combinations. Like, for example, all the way down to, like, uh, what is it? The $15 level, you get an early bird one nav spark plus an active antenna. Um, it includes postal shipping, so they throw it in the post and they, they send it off to you. All the way up to like something like a $50 one, you get two of them, uh, two NS raw and two active antennas. Uh, I'm not sure what the NS raw piece of that is or if that's the whole thing. Um, but anyway, so there's a bunch of different options you have there, and it looks like you, you can still sign up for these if you're a, a hardware hacker. So check that out
2: we should add this to the wildcat robot then it'll be location aware oh no attack its prey and know where it is
0: (laughs) you're kitty! oh no
2: someone should open source that thing so i can build it
0: 4k is for programmers (laughs)
2: what what is that susan so i think this sort of just popped at me because uh I'm like, what's all this hubbub about 4K uh, displays? I don't I, know. I, I can't tell the difference. I just thought it was
3: Ken talking about how much memory he had to work with when he started programming. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: thought, a, that's, that's a that's a lie. I thought that was the starting salary for more <laughs> programmers than oh, 4K. <laughs> wow.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: wow. Okay, go ahead.
2: So uh, <laughs> follow that up. <laughs> but this guy's a great idea. You know, 4K is great for programmers because, like, he has a picture here with he has like four different editors open. All clear. All with like hundreds of lines of code up there. All at once, and he has room for like more stuff on the screen. So basically, he's saying that <coughs> uh, this company here, Psyche or something, I don't know how to pronounce it, is uh... selling monitors, four K monitors. They're actually TV displays used as monitors for only like five hundred bucks. He's like telling people, you know, you should just switch over <laughs> to these things, and you need a pretty high end GPU to run it. And there's, you know, there's several limitations just because the other hardware hasn't caught up, up yet, but the displays are ridiculous of how much information you can put on there, how much you know oh context you can have at once. God. And as a programmer, I obviously love that. Yeah. And I'd love to have a large, you know, high-density display where I can have all of this up there, especially with the stuff I'm working on these days. So uh, I think stuff like this is awesome. The price just keeps coming down. And I, actually, honestly, at $500, it's really not that expensive.
0: No, it's not at all. Hey, you know, Eric and I were talking also about um, we both now have uh, – Max with those um, high-end displays. You know, the, what do they call that thing? Huh? The the high-resolution discre- the Retina display. Retina display. Yeah. Yeah. and I, I like them, but my eyes are starting to get all fuzzy, just like my memory. And uh, <laughs> but having like a, a a 39-inch monitor with like really good resolution, like my eyes could catch up with what I'm putting up there, and that's yeah, fantastic.
2: Exactly. I'd love that. Yeah,
0: I would too. Get a tan from this thing too. So 500 <laughs> bucks. That's very cool. And is it available now?
2: Yeah. I think these, wow. the, the first picture is like a stack of them, I think, that they, this company bought for their developers or whatever. Wow. Very uh, cool. Yeah. I'd love to have that.
0: Yep. All right. Well, we'll link to that in our show notes, which, again, is at com slash dev news for our current episode, which is 76, spirit of episode 76. Uh, let's go and talk about some of Chariot's blog posts. So, And so we have three this week that we're going to uh, highlight. We'll go kind of backward to forward. So, Eric, you have one. On doing data synchronization with Android, Um, do you want to kind of highlight that briefly for us?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, you know, this is really the first Android app I really have ever worked on. Um, So I wanted to play around with the you know the whole concept that instead of uh, you know fetching data. Or you know, providing data for updating a database or something on demand. You know, Android has the sync service, right? So you've seen it. You know, hook, it uh, hooks into so many of the things that we, uh, apps that we use. So how do you how do you implement that in your own app? So um, I I put together a blog post um, that covers. It's really two parts. One is creating an Android content provider and. Uh, I do highlight in there. It's abso- It's not completely necessary to to use the sync service to, to have a content provider, but I think it's a little cleaner and it sort of fits the model. Um, content providers. Uh, as the name implies, provide content. But um, y- it, it does allow you to possibly expose content outside of your app to other apps, um, although you don't have to. Uh, and in this case, I'm not using it in that way. Okay. Um, but it goes over how to create the content provider, um, sort of a sample implementation of the content provider and all the wacky you know metadata and XML you have to do to, to set up, uh, the authentication for that, and then this, uh, hooking in the sync, uh, sync adapter and the sync service into that content provider. Um, so it kind of has some, some code examples there for that.
0: So is the sync service something that kind of uh, periodically pulls for you and then notifies the? Uh- yes. OK.
3: Yeah, and you can also force a sync to happen. And, but I mean, in general, the, you know, the idea is that it's really coming from the outside in. So it's, it's Android that's forcing these things to happen.
0: Right, right. Um,
3: so is this yeah. a
2: design pattern they're suggesting people follow now when they're building Android apps?
3: I, I don't know, necessarily know um, that they're suggesting that all apps implement this pattern. It's definitely the right pattern for some apps. Um, yeah. you know some apps obviously you, you want to have a more real-time push to whatever right. backend, but um, I, I just kind of think it's it's nice and fairly clean. I mean it's still Java and there's a lot of verbose stuff and XML <laughs> and you know but um, bracket bra- semicolon. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Semicolon, bracket, bracket, semicolon, all right. Um, Cool. And then the next one uh, is a really short, uh, I guess I'm going to call this, and John would shoot me for this, I'm going to call this a love letter to Antler. (laughs) (laughs) But um, John actually, John Shepard, one of our developers, um, he uh, uh, has a little note on Antler 4. Now, it's funny, Antler is older than DIRT itself in terms of Java parser grammar creator APIs. (coughs) Um, And so, but I'm surprised it's only at number 4. Uh, it's kind of a slow-moving version numbering system, but he built a little sample calculator there, uh, and then you know, kind of a little bit on how to, to work it. And then he gave us a GitHub repo. So if you're curious about how to do uh, Antler and you haven't looked at it since version four, you can download that, play around with it, and see how he uses the uh, the grammar to kind of create a calculator process. Yeah.
2: He, he loves Antler four, and he he was telling me that it it's really simplified the grammar that you had to write previously, as evidenced in the example that he gives. I used,
0: years ago, I used Java CC instead of Antler because I found it very, very cryptic to work with. So maybe this will make me look at it again. That's very cool. Cool again. Cool again. Uh, Coolio. So the next one uh, is Mr. Steve Smith, uh, another Chariot developer, um, talking about mocking a public server API with Node.js and Charles. Charles is a neat little proxy tool. That must be me. Uh, Charles is a neat little proxy tool that you can run on your on Mac and other, I think, operating systems, I think. And it can kind of take over your networking connection and swap websites for you and let you spy on traffic and do things like that. It's very powerful for debugging and testing your network connections. Um, so he goes through, um, he creates an uh, iOS app. He makes it up uh, um, the Open Weather API. He's, he's using, using a. app. Um, App that emulates the Open Weather Map API. Uh, he also mentions in here, if you're not an iOS developer much and getting started with it, you know, dependency management is always a very manual thing uh, in Xcode unless you use a utility. So um, there actually is one I didn't even know about until recently. It's called CocoaPods, hence the name, of Cocoa, you know, um, yum, operating yum, system. Yum. Get it? <laughs> um, and so CocoaPods is a dependency manager for Xcode. Didn't even know it existed. Um, and that can let you do things like add projects like AF networking and MB progress heads-up display Which are the two things that he's using there? and he also has a full project out on uh, github as uh, his github project Stephen p smith slash charles dash node dash blog which again is linked to from this blog article uh, And then how to mock the api's so really interesting in-depth stuff there all right um, that's pretty much it. Let's talk housekeeping briefly. So uh, Chariot has a couple things coming up. We've got, first of all, the Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise uh, conference is coming up on April 22nd and 23rd, 2014. Uh, the tickets are selling. So if you want to get a seat, do not wait until the end of February. Because likely uh, they're going to be close to sold out by then. Yeah,
2: go get it now.
0: Yes. Um, we've got an amazing set of speakers. We say this every year, but I'll give you some names and we can all kind of comment if we feel like it. Um, Joel Spolsky.
1: Now, Joel Confino
0: <laughs> loves Joel Spolsky, right? <laughs> right, right? Yeah, he
1: has a blog, Joel, on software. Really good, really popular. And
0: he has a, uh, his main software, is like a
1: version control system or something like that? Well, uh, Fog Creek. Fog Creek, yeah. Is a. Um, Bug tracking. bug tracking yeah. Fog, yeah, bugs. fog bugs, fog bugs. Right. and and um he, a bunch of things but stack exchange and stack overflow yep. and trello and lots of lots of good software but also lots of good thinking on startups and things like that
0: right so he's gonna have a keynote i'm not sure what the topic is just yet um and then we also have a keynote from
2: brian gets the man
0: lambda dude um he'll probably hate being called dude <laughs> <laughs> But he's the second keynote. Uh, so that that just alone right there, fantastic. Uh, and you know, the Lambda syntax of Java uh, Java 8 is going to be a big thing uh, for Java programmers who have not yet dipped their toes into the functional programming uh, oasis there, or at least object functional. Uh, and then we have a number of other people in a whole bunch of different technologies. Uh, we've got the creator of Vertex, Tim Fox, showing up. We've got, um, let's we see. Have Roland
2: Kuhn for the project lead on Akka. Ooh,
0: Sweet. that's good. Yeah. Yep. We've got uh, David Taransky coming uh, again. He spoke last year uh, about spring, uh, what's new in spring four and all the new spring services for spring people.
2: We've got Dave Thomas.
0: Dave Thomas, the pragmatic programmer himself. And, Mr. Yeah. Uh, and he's not keynoting. Mr. Mr. Elixir Elixir. Now. Elixir. Yep. Elixir. That's right. And you know what's interesting is RailsConf is the same week he decided to come to ETE. That gives anyone who's on the fence between picking up <laughs> the two, there's a reason he came. And and you know obviously he did Rails years ago, but um, that didn't sway him you know to go to a Rails conference. We have um, you know Agilist, Linus Rising, just a bunch of other people. If you go to PhillyEmergingTech.com, it'll take you to the 2014 page. You can register right there. Um, between now and February 14th, it is only 395 bucks for two days of conferences, which is, uh, conference sessions, which is an amazing number. Just great stuff. If you wait till after February 14th and tickets are still on sale, they'll be $100 more, so get them now. Um, That's the first thing I wanted to mention. The second thing is in our Chariot Solutions training. Um, I'm running a couple training courses coming up. Um, So if you go to chariotsolutions.com slash training, uh, we typically run course spring training throughout the year. Uh, This is the spring certification training uh, that VMware uh, slash Pivotal now uh, has been offering for years. Um, We have a course coming up on February 25th. We're very competitive price-wise. And also, we have a brand new um, updated AngularJS fundamentals course that is now two days long with Intensive Labs. So if you were looking to get your feet wet and really get going on AngularJS, go ahead and hit that particular training, and it's going to be very worthwhile for you. We're also um, working on an advanced class that will be debuting sometime by the second quarter. And that's it. So uh, for the Chariot developer news, um for Monday, january twentieth, twenty fourteen, I'm Ken Rempel.
1: I'm Joe Confino.
2: I'm Eric Snyder. Bye. And I'm Sue
0: John Capadia. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Dude. Dude.